This is made for you by All Souls, a church in Seattle, Washington, seeking to be a community not just for ourselves, but a vibrant expression of who God is, gracious, present, hospitable. Take a moment now to come as you are and bring your attention to God. came in late. My name's RJ. I serve as a pastor here. And some folks, uh, at least I did when I was a kid, thought pastors were sort of just like born that way. Uh, And I I think for me, it's been a long journey, I'll say that, (laughs) to even becoming like a regular participant in a church community. I was an agnostic for a good part of my life, functional atheist. Um, And I want you to know that if you're asking questions and have doubts, you are very welcome here. Um, All Souls is the kind of place where people come from a variety of different backgrounds, and we're the kind of place where we value questions as well as those who ask them. So I hope you'll feel free to come as you are, to be curious and to explore. Um, So this morning, as my family and I prepared to host home group for the first time again in our fall season, which just began for home groups, I took our coats off the coat rack by the door and move them to the laundry room in order to make room for our guests as they arrived. So this simple act, which is, you know, a pre-home group ritual that I was remembering I used to do last, you know, time we were gathering regularly as home groups, it really helped to remind me what hospitality is all about. I find myself needing to make room in my own heart and soul and life Asking God as my coat rack sort of like emerges from its typically buried state, (laughs) burdened by our coats, to show me his hospitality and free up space in me to extend hospitality so others can feel like they belong, like they're known, like they're loved. It's a big hope for a small coat rack to hold. But I think (laughs) in hospitality it is so often and doing these little things with great love, hoping that people will feel like they have a place in our house, at least for their coats, as a start. So as we get back into the swing of hosting home group again this fall, as some of you get back into this uh, after our typical summer break, I just find myself very grateful for this practical reminder, this simple invitation that making room on the coat rack is to my soul. Am I becoming someone for whom others have room, you know, in the rest of my life? In in my own attitude toward people in my life, am I someone who's making room? Do I care about other people's sense of welcome or belonging, being known and loved? Am I becoming someone who is, in a word, hospitable? Now, what about you? On your block or around your table, in your office or at a dog park, are you becoming someone who is hospitable? Who are you becoming? We've been holding this question uh, over the past three weeks to ask who are we becoming? Who, Who are you becoming? Who am I becoming? And who are we becoming as a community? And this is our last sermon in this series exploring together these three words that have long been signposts at All Souls to describe who God is, gracious, present, 
and hospitable. So last week we explored present, the week before that it was gracious. You can catch up on those if you missed them on our sermon podcast or on our website. But these three words have long stood as markers of who we hope we're becoming as all souls. A church not just for ourselves, but in and for our city as a vibrant expression of who God is, gracious, present, and hospitable. So today we take a look at this word hospitable as we consider who God is as a host and what it means in particular that we experience and extend the hospitality of God in a world that pushes us toward isolation and tribalism. This is a time when we are seeing more people displaced, as my friend Tim reminded me today, than any time in world history since World War II. We need the kind of community that hospitality creates, a place where we're known, loved, and belong. But how, right? I mean, how? Especially given how isolated and antagonistic we can be today. How do we make room for an increasingly tribal and controversial moment? And I want to suggest the same way Jesus did, by eating and drinking. Maybe that's not what you're expecting. But in the Gospel of Luke alone, okay, there are over 50 references to food. And a scholar on Luke's Gospel named Robert Karras writes this. He says, in Luke's Gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. I mean, I like this Jesus. (laughs) Foodies, he eats well. Follow him. So now in Luke chapter 14, as Lydia read, we have a meal that invites us to experience and extend God's hospitality through discovering who God is as a host, who we are as his desired guests, and how we are all called to be table servers. Okay? So if you want to track along, Luke 14 invites us to experience and extend God's hospitality through the key roles of host guests, and servers. So first, host. When you think about God, do you think of him commonly as a host? I think today many of us in our attempts to understand God, think of God, or long for God to be a healer. Today, uh, do we not long for like a mighty counselor as we sing, you know, in Handel's Messiah, to help us heal emotionally and relationally and psychologically. Like a great physician, right, to lead our medical teams when we are suffering from illness, God as a healer. Another way, biblical way, to talk about God is as a righteous judge who will guide our failing leaders, Lord help us. Raise up new ones, please, and bring justice in our unjust world, right? We selfishly hope, too, that he will approve our agenda, maybe, and make our preferred political kingdoms come. Okay, that gets thrown in. That's a rider. But behind God as healer and judge, and among other ways of understanding God in the Bible, there's an overarching image of God as a yearning, gracious host. Listen to verse 23 from chapter 14. Go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. God has always been, before there was anything to heal, before there was injustice to judge, God has always been a host. As a good host, he holds together roles like healer and judge, but with this larger goal that he has for us of enjoying a meal together. A beautiful feast 
together at the end of time is the end to which the biblical story points. Do you think of God as host? This is why Jesus was so often eating and drinking. He was mistaken by some as a glutton and a drunkard. In Genesis, it is his creation that he invites humanity to enjoy and experience in his goodness, as we heard read from Genesis just a minute ago. In Genesis, we also discover something else about God as host. In Genesis 3, we discover he is a rejected host. A rejected yet yearning host. Adam and Eve try to make a feast of their own, on their own terms, right? And get, we get hints of this in the rejection that we see in this passage when the, the food is ready, but the people start excusing themselves, right? I have bought a field. I must go and see it. Sorry, please excuse me. I just bought five yoke of oxen. I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. I just got married. I can't come. We just heard this, right? These are all echoes of Adam and Eve's rejection of God's hospitality. Even still, God as a rejected host still yearns for his table to be full. I think that's just beautiful to remember in our time today. We come close to understanding God's heart here and his longing for a table to be full. And how do we realize this? Probably most poignantly in our daily lives. It's in our toughest relationships, isn't it? We come close to understanding God's heart here in our toughest relationships, the God who is rejected yet yearning host. Think about a tough relationship for you right now in your life. Our hard relationships show us what it is like to be God, a rejected yet yearning host. As the Bible tells us, God keeps on trying, keeps on pursuing. And throughout scriptures, Throughout the scriptures, we see ways God keeps trying. He goes right to Abraham in this one dramatic and memorable scene and makes room for him at his table, room for him to be close to God again by saying, I, God, will become as this animal torn in two if I break my promise to you. It's a dramatic way to put it, but memorable. He goes to Moses. He goes to David. And then he finally gets to Jesus. Jesus, finally someone who will listen, (laughs) who does what God says, right? If you know Abraham's story, Moses' story, David's story, they're very back and forth, up and down, God remaining faithful. Finally, God gets to Jesus, someone who will listen, who does what God says, who doesn't use meals as an occasion to set up barriers, but who is setting the table for the kingdom of God everywhere he goes. People from every walk of life, are welcome at his table. He welcomes prostitutes, treacherous, profiteering tax collectors like Zacchaeus are now sitting next to their former clients. The scandalously rich sit alongside the painfully poor, the Gentile and the Jew. In London, when Carol and I were working with a church plant there, we hosted a Thanksgiving meal, which was like a novelty, of course, to Brits. They don't really have Thanksgiving, so... We were like, hey, we'll be the token Americans that have an excuse to have you all over. And so uh, we did that. And as people gathered together at the table, I looked around and I saw my dear friend Victor, a Nigerian drug dealer who discovered Jesus and started bringing his former clients to church. (laughs) He was sitting next to an architect working on Apple's new headquarters at the time, that big donut building. And next to him was a Ugandan woman who is considered cursed by her people because she could bear no children. 
And next to her were two ethnically Malay college students for whom it was illegal to be Christians. Even in London, there was a surveillance that would happen for college students who were ethnically Malay, and they were kind of these underground Christians in our midst. And then one of Victor's clients, who's still on a path away from drugs, looked across the table at my friend Pete. And Pete is a Cambridge grad from Generational Wealth. And he looked at him in the eye and he said, If you told me I would ever be sitting at a table like this, I would never have believed you. (laughs) Hospitality, the word hospitality, it's a compound word in the Greek, philoxenia. Philo, right, might be familiar, meaning love. Xenia, meaning stranger, foreigner, or guest. Hospitality is the very opposite, the very undoing of xenophobia. It's the love of the stranger, not the fear or the hate of the other. It's the act of welcoming an outsider in, and in doing so, turning guests into family in God. All of us, in diverse and personal ways, want to be desired guests. The enduring songwriting of Bruce Springsteen shines when he sings, Everybody has a hungry heart. We long for God in our hungers that pop up in life's loneliness, in life's disintegration, in the ways our families growing up welcomed us or didn't welcome us. Hospitality meets each of us in our estrangement. And estrangement looks different for each of us, right? I mean, it looks different as a refugee than as a mom of four kids. But the refugee and the mom can relate to each other in our hungers and in our estrangements. We all know what it's like to have a hungry heart. And God, our host, wants us to know in that place that we are desired guests. We are desired guests at his table. And he did not stop at the cost of his body being broken, his life poured out, if it meant that we could feast together with our hearts restored. Friends, you are desired guest of the living God. You for whom he was slain. We celebrate the most expensive meal of all time each week right here. The rejected host himself becomes rejected. That we would know his welcome table is available to us in our every estrangement. Our home groups have this rhythm built in together and each other's hungers and unmet needs are shared in this sort of like middle section of our time together, we celebrate God as host, and then we share with one another as desired guests at God's table who hosts us. And home groups are sort of like a table leaf extension of what happens here at the Lord's Supper each week. We share as desired guests, welcomed in from estrangement by the very love of God, and stay in that space. We stay in that space together week after week that we meet, year after year, in a community in a communal space, a collection of interpersonal relationships that remind us of who we are to God as desired guests, who we are to one another as desired guests, sharing our hungers, sharing our needs, and finding them met by God's hospitality. And friends, I want to encourage you to stay in that space. Have a rhythm of that kind of impact on your life. One of the things Joseph Hellerman, a church researcher, discovered was that People who stay grow, is what he said. People who stay grow. Long-term interpersonal relationships 
are the context for discovering growth in our lives. And as we grow in experiencing God's hospitality, friends, we will be equipped to extend it. God is host. We as desired guests, we become servers. Henry Nouwen puts it this way. In our world full of strangers, estranged from their own past, culture, and country, from their neighbors, friends, and family, from their deepest self and their God, we witness a painful search for a hospitable place where life can be lived without fear and where community can be found. It is possible for men and women and obligatory for Christians to offer an open and hospitable space where strangers can cast off their strangeness and become our fellow human beings. It is possible for men and women, obligatory for Christians, to offer an open and hospitable space where strangers can cast off their strangeness and become our fellow human beings. Friends, with God as our host, we can invite strangers in. And it's not up to us to make the magic happen. It is on God to help create among strangers a connection between us as desired guests and equip us to serve. We become those for whom hospitality is an attitude, a heart posture toward others as well as actions. When we offer hospitality, we get to embody and participate in the very heart of God, the triune God who's meeting needs constantly, sharing delight, sheer joy, generosity, provision, that life. So what does this look like for us on street level? A couple things I want to encourage you in and invite myself into in doing so. Extending hospitality means opening up our living spaces. So for some of us, right, uh, we have homes. For some of us, we have apartments. For some of us, it's shared space. Uh, For some of us who uh, might be students in our parents' household, how do we do hospitality? Opening up your living space. So I think (laughs) I just want to speak to basically whatever you find at home in your living space is something you can offer to others. Whatever feels homey is something you may be able to offer to others. And I think some of us are held up from doing that, in part because we don't think our space is maybe ready or hospitable enough or, you know, welcoming in the ways that maybe other people would see it. So uh, I heard um, someone say this recently. There's two types of people, those who envy other people's houses and those who are lying. So I think there is a level to which all of us just have to get to terms with that. Our house isn't going to be good enough. And, and you know what? To be honest, if you were to ask someone with that wonderful house you may be envious of, they're going to list the imperfections. They're going to have their to-do list, right? So I just want to name for us that no one's living space is quite ready yet, okay? It's just how are you going to use it? So opening up our living spaces. That's what hospitality invites us to do. Hospitality also means welcoming strangers. That's at the heart of what hospitality in the Christian sense is. And this includes Christians, okay? Because sometimes Christians are strange, and that's okay. (laughs) and, And this is the invitation, is to welcome in people who are strange to you. And people who are also strange to you and familiar in some ways and strange to you in in really drastic ways. So uh, for some of us, that might be people who are experiencing poverty in a very visceral way. 
And I think this passage in Luke 14 holds out to us the imagination of God to create in very difficult circumstances a hospitable circumstance. And I think more and more when we think of hospitality today, so many of us are thinking about like Martha Stewart, if you're of a certain generation, right? Say the word hospitality among millennials and they'll be like, nah, like something like kinfolk maybe, right? Uh, If that is our whole definition of hospitality though, we're missing out. We need to work at putting hospital back into our understanding of hospitality. There is so much more to enjoy than impressing our friends with our curated taste, okay, when it comes to hospitality. And you never know. You might develop a friendship with someone radically different than you would have hoped for or planned. It might be just one of the best things that's ever happened to you. Jesus often had peculiar friendships, life-giving, peculiar friendships. There's an invitation for us there. What we find as we're extending hospitality, is that we will again and again, especially in hard circumstances, need to experience it. We will have deepening appreciation for the hospitality of God, for God is our gracious and present host if we are extending his hospitality. The work of hospitality is generative, it's dynamic. You give it, and as you do, you begin to receive it more deeply, unlikely as that may seem at times. So I think a lot of us coming out of the pandemic, hospitality feels maybe hard. Um, We've made it far enough out of the pandemic, and yet it seems like we weren't that long ago living these kind of dysfunctionally isolated lives. So I think there's some things we're still learning to do again and learning to do in maybe new ways. Uh, And it's a particularly hard moment, I think, for hospitality. But, um, you know, I heard a recent church historian, like, reflecting on our current moment in its isolation and difficulty, um, and, and it led him to wonder just kind of more broadly, like, what, what is the, like, hardest or worst year in world history? So he began to ask this question and research it. What is the worst year in world history? He found a Radiolab episode on this, uh, and maybe if you're interested, I can link you to it, but apparently there is a consensus among historians, right? The worst year in world history is 536. There was an invasion of cities about that time as the Roman Empire was crumbling that depleted cities from about 1 million to 50,000 people. It's an incredible loss of life. Iceland also that year had a volcano massive enough to cover all of Europe in a cloud of darkness. The same year, uh, Australia was hit by a comet, okay, (laughs) causing even more global clouds to cause an entire year of darkness. So, If you thought, like, 2019, 2020, 21 were rough, like, 536, y'all. This this was, like, apocalyptic here. There was famine because of the darkness. And then uh, for dessert, there was plague. There was a massive plague at that time. And so this church historian found himself asking, well, who was alive then in the church? What were they doing with this crazy crisis they found themselves in? As it turns out, there's a guy named Benedict was alive at this time, Benedict of Nursia, and his life was dedicated to a pretty small emphasis. He tried to create these sort of like healthy communities of hospitality, and what he left behind were simply, I mean, you think about a guy named Benedict whose name we know today. Um, This guy had 12 communities of 12 people that he left behind as a legacy, which isn't like that much, right? Maybe? I don't know. I mean, depends how you measure things, but it didn't sound that impressive, right? This guy, Benedict, left 12 communities of 12 people that became the first monasteries. 
Now, monasteries became these hubs for, like, agriculture. That's where, like, animal husbandry was invented. They copied down and saved the learnings of past generations from just burning. They carried Europe on their back for centuries, culturally speaking. They became these hospitality hubs where you couldn't walk at one point more than a day without running into another monastery. These are some small seeds that grew into branches where more and more people could find fruit, could find rest. I want to invite you right now to take your order of worship if you have it. On the back cover, you'll see an image of a tree. It's our logo. It's also up there. This comes from Matthew 13, 32. And it's talking about a mustard seed that grows into a mustard tree. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the other garden plants and becomes a tree, so that birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Friends, I want to invite you to have an imagination for little things with great love as the work of hospitality. As Benedict, with 12 communities of 12 people, that's about the size of a home group. Whatever it looks like for you to begin to do this work together of experiencing and extending God's hospitality. And all souls, who are we becoming? We have as a logo this image of this tree where birds of the air come and make nests in its branches, where fruit is growing. Friends, we have what we need to become a community that lives beyond itself, right? A community that doesn't just exist for ourselves, but in and for our city is a vibrant expression of who God is. Gracious present, and hospitable. Lord, make it so. Amen.